can releasing Lake Sturgeon into Saginaw Bay help the species recover? What good fishing is coming up this fall? And is there a fish that can see with its skin? Really? To find out, let's ask Dr. Fish. That's right, it is Ask Dr. Fish, our every other month show in which we ask our doctor's fish fish questions, science questions, and life questions. If you have a question for our doctor's fish, just uh, do the hashtag, Ask Dr. Fish, or you can uh, comment in the chat right now, right? Just if you're watching, put it in the chat, we'll answer your question. But first, let's introduce our doctor's fish today. We're joined by Katie O'Reilly, Dr. Katie O'Reilly. She's the Aquatic Invasive Species Specialist with Illinois Indiana Sea Grant. And you can find her on Twitter. She's Twitter famous. Dr. Catfish. Uh, Catfish with a K. Katie, it's a little joke there. A little pun. We're also joined by Titus Seilheimer, also a Dr. Fish, a fishery specialist at Wisconsin Sea Grant. Titus, what's on the fish shirt today? Is it a fish shirt? It is a fish shirt. I am celebrating my favorite movie, and that movie, of course, is Jaws. Uh, So we've got a large, great weight shark. Fantastic. 65 to 75% of fisheries biologists are there because of Jaws and Shark Week, I think, conservatively. Um, and the other 25 or 35% got eaten by a shark. And we're also joined by Carolyn Foley, not a Dr. Fish, but she's research coordinator with Illinois Indiana Sea Grant. And we're so happy to have her on. Carolyn, how's it going? I am doing well, thanks. Are you a Jaws? Are you a Jaws? Or are you a... I'm, I'm, I'm more of a... Um... Sea World, so blackfish messed with my head kind of thing. So yeah. Oh yep. yeah, you can't go watching the blackfish. No, yep. that's like reading about J.K. Rowling. You just can't do it. Yeah. All right. The point is this: uh, we have some fish questions, and we're going to start off with uh, topic number one. Carolyn, take it away. All right. So this is kind of a cuckoo crazy one, in my opinion. Um, but there was a story that came out this week about fish that can see with their skin. So um, it was a a science alert article. So it was kind of like a, you know, a a journal article that was coming out and things like that. So maybe Katie, can you tell us a little bit about this fish that can see with its skin? Yeah, absolutely. So this is a fish known as the hogfish. So this is not one that we've got here in the Great Lakes, uh, but it's a marine fish. And what's really cool about this is it's actually not a phenomenon that's like brand new to us, this idea that some species of fish, uh, mollusks, so things like octopi, they can change colors. Like we knew that, uh, but what this study was really cool and did kind of a deeper dive into is like why and sort of more of the processes of that changing color. And so when we say that, you know, that the hogfish sees with its skin, it's not the same necessarily as its eyes, you know, our eyes absorb like kind of the light around us and then they actually process it to give us an image that, you know, kind of goes together in our brain, not a neuroscience. So just start saying cones and rods and you'll be fine. Just cones, rods, light, etc. But what's what this study uh, found was that the hogfish in its cells that change color, things that are called chromatophores, it actually is used to detect like the, the color of the fish's skin. So the best way I can describe it um, without getting too, too technical is like, it's almost like having a mirror for the fish. The fish is, it can't really tell what its skin looks like. So the sensory uh, apparatus that's in these cells 
kind of gives feedback to the fish's nervous system about like what color am I? And then it can make shifts as needed to, you know, better fit in with its surroundings. So if you don't have a mirror underwater, the next next best thing is to have your cells tell you what you look like. You know, and to quote the story, uh, it's like taking a snapshot from the inside of the fish. Uh, so it is, you know, yeah, it is like if you could imagine what you look like on the outside without a mirror, uh, but from the inside, um, that's what the fish is doing. So, yeah, it's pretty cool. It's trippy stuff. I'm thinking about like the Zoom, you know, you have to decide whether or not to turn on or off the self-view. And for mental health, you should turn off the self-view. Uh, but I, of course, turn it on. I'm going to check myself out. But so hogfish don't really have a choice, I guess. Is this common? Do you know of other fish that change? I know about the I know about the octopus um, and, and some sort of squid, I think, maybe. Are there other fish that you've heard of that change color? You know, color color is a weird thing in fish, too. I mean, like, it is very variable to begin with. Um, and, you know, you can see a lot of uh, sort of different variation in just the color, even of the same species. In the same place, you might see a lot of uh, differences in color, and it looks like uh, you know maybe the the Nile tilapia is that uh, I think that has also the ability to kind of detect uh, what what colors it is. And what's also kind of interesting is this is a process called as like dynamic color changing, uh, which means it happens sort of on the order of seconds to minutes, so very quick paced. But there's also color changes that can happen over longer periods of time too. So this is this is more like what you think about if you see like an octopus moving a, along the ocean bottom and you see it like take on all those crazy colors to match with their surroundings. That's this dynamic process, um, which as Titus said, is seen in other fish like the Nile tilapia. Um, and probably, I mean, honestly, I think if we start looking for some things, you know, we might be surprised by the, the fish that have the ability to do that. But color is just a very, very much a Pandora's box of getting into cool and nerdy physiology of fish. Yeah. But even just like what colors are where, I know, I mean, uh, like in marine environments where it gets really deep at different depths, you'll see different colors of fish because the light like kicks out, right? Like, exactly. like when you get very deep, uh, I think all the red light is filtered out maybe. And so that's why you'll see a lot of red fish deep because it's essentially the same as, as black. Yep, exactly. And so that's a way that deep sea fish, especially, uh, you know, are often red because it makes them essentially invisible because that red light has been filtered out. Yeah, and if you think of, you know, just the general color, like the, the bottom of a fish is usually white. So if, uh, and then the top is a darker color. So if you're, you know, a predator underneath looking up, you're not going to see that white because it's going to disappear into the silhouette of the you know, the sky above, or if you're looking from above, looking down, a darker color on top is going to gonna help. So, um, you know, and if you think about changing color too, it's not like, you know, these animals that change color, like, you know, if I set my hand down on this desk and looked at it and then, you know, made it change color, like they're, you know, they're, they are just kind of automatically changing color to match their background. You know, I don't think it's a, a conscious thought necessarily. So they're, you know, just, uh, you know, that that's why it makes sense to have this kind of vision, to, you know, through your skin, because you're if your skin can kind of see what the, the background is, it can match that a lot better. Otherwise, I would just disappear into my messy office background. And we'll put a link to uh, this story and also a cool octopus video. We'll find a cool octopus video uh, and if you're listening to this in, in on podcast form. Or uh, you can go to AskDrFish.com slash six, the number six, 
or just look down in your little pod reader and tap on the Let's go to the next story. It's about everybody's favorite or some people's favorite smallmouth bass. Um, so in the, in the Great Lakes, um, you know, like, and like the Midwest, smallmouth bass fishing is something that people really like to do. But uh, we found a story about the Colorado River where smallmouth bass are less uh, in, desired, shall we say. So um, that's not a smallmouth bass. Look at that ugly thing. What is that? Hey, hey. <laughs> it's a humpback chub. So I don't know. Titus, do you want to talk, talk about this story a little bit for us? I think it's a, a magnificent looking uh it's adorable. Fish. There. Yeah. So this, you know, it is a, it's a story and there, there's our, uh, our smallmouth bass, uh, some little ones, juvenile smallmouth bass. Uh, you know, so this is a, it's a story of a species out of place um, causing problems with the native species. Um, and uh, yeah, so smallmouth bass is, you know, a popular uh, sport fish around kind of the, the middle of the country, but uh, once you get out of the range, it's kind of, you know, along the Atlantic coast, uh, really west of, uh, kind of west of Nebraska, it's uh, non-native as well. So uh, it can cause problems. Uh, you've got your federally recognized kind of threatened species, the the horny, horn, wait, what is it? Humpback chub. Humpback chub. Um, humpback chub, which is, is that a, uh, is that in the sucker family? Katie, you're our, our taxonomy expert. It is it is a a proud member of the sucker family. Fully catastomid, that humpback chub. Yes, yes. So we throw in the weird names of common names with chub, uh, which, you know, for us chubs generally are uh, minnows uh, in the minnow family, but uh, why not name something also uh, in the sucker family for fun? So uh, yeah, so they're they're causing, some all of bass are causing problems. They're uh, eating these threatened species. The the just incredibly shaped um, horny-headed chubs. And uh, yeah, so the, the Park Service will be removing them, uh, removing these smallmouth bass uh, using rotenone, which is a, a fish poison. Ah, rotenone. So I have done rotenone sampling before. This was back in graduate school when I was a master's student at the University of Georgia. And, and so we rotenone sampled a cove. And I don't fully get how it works, but what we do is we're in a big lake, or this was a reservoir, and you sort of, we, we cordoned off this cove, released the rotenone, and sat there for a little while. And then the fish started floating up. And that was day number one. Day number two, a few more fish floated up. Day number three, the professors were no longer there. They sent out the technicians and the undergraduates because it started to get a little foul. But, so rotenone's a poison they used to sampling. I have a couple of questions about it. One, like, how does it work exactly? And why does it only kill fish? Or does it only kill fish? And then uh, I guess two, why is this okay uh, to do? Yeah, so I can jump in there. So rotenone is, I would say, probably one of the more, if not most commonly used compounds for contr controlling, you know, what we call undesirable fish. And whatever you consider undesirable fish, whether that's a non-native species or just species that you're not ideally wanting in your water body. Uh, rotenone is actually a naturally occurring substance. It's derived from the roots of tra tropical plants. Um, so, I mean, it goes with the thing that, yes, it is a chemical, but all chemicals come from somewhere. And, uh, you know, so it this is a naturally occurring substance that we've, you know, utilized for this, this purpose of controlling fish. 
uh, it really started to get into use in North America by fisheries managers. I'd say like, you know, early mid 20th century, like the 1930s. Um, and what it does is it actually inhibits the transfer of oxygen in fish and like cellular, cellular respiration. So it, it's not removing oxygen from the water column. It's actually going into the cells of the fish and making it so they're not getting oxygen. And so rotenone is kind of, I, I think of it as almost the nuclear option sometimes because it is going to affect all fish. It Some species are more susceptible to others so or than others. So things like carp are a little bit more susceptible than, um, you know, some other species such as bass. But essentially at a high enough concentration, you're going to wipe out the fish community. And then the idea sometimes is that by starting fresh, you can stock whatever fish community you're ideally trying to manage for. Um, so it's it it can be somewhat of a drastic option. Like, you know, you said, Stuart, it, you know, it results in kind of a crime scene uh, for the fish, the you know, fish uh, PD department. But it is, again, if you're dealing with an undesirable fish population, it is a way that you can kind of start fresh. Yeah, so kind of a, a blunt, a blunt tool, but uh, it, it is effective, you know, removing everything. And you see it a lot, you know, out west a lot with uh, like these different strains of trout uh, where, you know, you've got a stock trout that's just kind of a generic like rainbow trout. But then you want to if you want to restore a, a native strain, you need to kind of get rid of those generally bossier uh, kind of bullies that are rainbow trout in general. Um, yeah. Or, you know, uh, in areas like uh with uh, the invasive carps um, around Illinois, um, you know, removing those those carp, especially from things like uh, locks and dams, might be a tool you could use. Uh, so it's a tool uh, that we use in fisheries. I, I, you know, Stuart, you're not a doctor fish, but you've got more experience with uh, rotenone than I do. I've never, never used it. So uh, back to the smallmouth bass then. So in the Great Lakes, we had uh, a sport fish that was really common and causing issues with the salmon. Why don't they just make a smallmouth bass fishery out there? What What are the trade-offs there? Oh, <laughs> you want to take that one, Titus? Yeah, I can, I can address it. I mean, th this is the problem uh, with a lot of these species that we have here. Uh, you know, same story with lake trout in Yellowstone Lake with perch, yellow perch and walleye in the Pacific Northwest. Um you know, it's it's just the same thing. Uh, they're out of their range. They are, uh, you know, you could create a sport fishery for them, but uh, you know, the the price of that would be uh, kind of, you know, losing native native fish species. So, um, you know, generally, it would I think it would be bad ecologically uh, to support that. But yeah, it's a uh, it's a management decision, and you know how a lot of these species will get out, you know, out of their range. Um, or, uh, you know, invade these new areas is, is generally because of people uh, moving them around. And, you know, sometimes it's a, it's a management agency that wants to, oh, we'll create a new fishery, stock a new fish, or, you know, it can just be anglers who, hey, I like catching this fish uh, back home. I'm going to take it to this place that I also like to fish and catch it there. And uh, it could just be big problems that cost a lot of money to manage. Right. And like Titus said, you know, by 
creating these non-native fisheries, we're not just like harming other fish in these ecosystems. It's It can harm things like amphibians. It can, you know, kind of alter the food web in sort of these unexpected cascading domino type ways. And so, you know, in the case of the smallmouth bass and humpback chub, like, you know, okay, you know, who, who cares about the humpback chub other than me, because I, I think it is an adorable fish, but, you know, that is, it, it really is about kind of the management focus and what figuring out what we value. Um, and I use the Royal we there, but like, you know, lots of different stakeholder groups are going to value different aspects of an ecosystem. And so, you know, a fishery that has non-native species may be really good for tourism, supporting businesses, but it may have negative effects on other species that may have like cultural, um, cultural value to different groups. So it, fisheries management is very much a, a, a game of trade-offs. Um, of course, and sometimes the royal we is just the royal me. Like, in the, I mean, we don't have to get this far afield, but when you look at the, the, the salmon in Lake Michigan, it was this one dude. It was Howard Tanner. And I mean, obviously more than just the one guy, but, but essentially it was one fisheries biologist in one state who said, let's do it. Let's, do it. let's just go do it and be heroes. We'll do it and be heroes. And, uh, and in some ways, I guess he is in other ways. Um, it's complicated. The smallmouth bass. Part of why I brought up this story was from, um, my life as a, a bug person who had to help sample fish, smallmouth bass. It's these I'm like, I can identify that one because of the, I always remember that. I don't know this chub, humpback chub, but the smallmouth bass, I was like seeing it there. I was like, oh, I remember you. But anyway, okay. So just um, for those of you who have joined us online, just a reminder, this is Ask Dr. Fish, a show where our two Dr. Fishes answer your fish questions, science questions, and life questions. If you have a question for our doctors, you can put it into the chat right now, and we'll try to answer it live on the air. Or you can use the Twitter hashtag, artist formerly known as Twitter hashtag, AskDrFish. Um, you can also email us at AskDrFish at gmail.com. Yeah, we want your questions about, or comments, questions or comments about fish you've seen in unusual places. That's something we want. Tell, our, tell us about that or ask us about that. So smallmouth bass in the Colorado a humpback chub in the Yukon, other fish in an unusual place. You know, it, and I think another, like, as of watching that video, you know, another thing that pops out, like, where are they treating it? It's below this massive dam. I mean, these are, like, these are systems that are already very altered. So, you know, you're a, a humpback chub, and, you know, that's what we call Stuart most of the time um, when he's not here. And, you know, the, so... You know they're already uh, having to deal with these huge alterations to their natural habitat, and uh, you know so then you bring a new species in where uh, you know those smallmouth bass and actually also green sunfish. Another uh, you know they're hoping to kill both of those because those are both a problem in this area uh, for the humpback chub. So um, you know it's it's doing what we have to do to to preserve these species. So that gives us a great segue into the next topic. So everybody who's listening online, feel free to add comments or questions, and we'll try to address those live on the air. But we did want to talk a little bit about a story that is near and dear to my heart. Um, so in terms of trying to help native species out and, and revert, 
There have recently been some lake sturgeon releases in the Saginaw Bay watershed. And um, Katie, I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about what's going on there and what's been happening for several years. Oh, I would love to because a lake sturgeon are very near and dear to my heart as well. So to kind of set the stage before all of this, you know, lake sturgeon were once incredibly abundant in the Great Lakes region, kind of pre-European settlement of the basin. Um, and we still have, a, you know, of all the remaining lake sturgeon in the world, we still have a, a big population of them, relatively speaking. Um, but when we look at historical numbers of lake sturgeon, it's really a tiny fraction of what it used to be. And this is from a variety of reasons. Like we we overfished them. Um, they were considered a nuisance at one point. They uh, We've cut off access to their spawning habitat by building dams. So we, you know, we hurt them in a variety of different ways. But in recent-ish decades, uh, there's really been this push to help restore lake sturgeon populations to the Great Lakes. One of the challenges with this is it's not as easy as just raising a couple fish, releasing them. They, you know, become adults and spawn in a couple of years. Lake sturgeon take a long, a long time relative to other fish species to become reproductively mature. So that is in order for them to have babies. Um, so a lot of the efforts that we've made and investments that have been made in the last 10, 20 years are, you know, we're still waiting to see some of the results of that uh, with the goal of reestablishing some populations. So with that context, um, the story that we wanted to talk about focuses on the Saginaw Bay watershed of Michigan. Uh, so if you're looking at, I don't have the hand the wrong way, it's kind of in the thumb region of, of the Mitten State. And this particular watershed has undergone a lot of restoration, you know, trying to restore connectivity of the various tributaries. Um, but it's also been the site of several releases of baby sturgeon. I want to say, I, I actually personally participated in one back in 2018, uh, but I know there was one that happened in 2017 as well. Um, so a lot of agencies working together have you know, really tried to involve the public in these releases of baby sturgeon into the rivers of the Saginaw Bay watershed um, to, you know, get a sense of investment. Like you're sending this little baby sturgeon off and you're hoping in 15, 20 look years. Like, yeah, look, look at them. Look at the cute little it's baby so sturgeon. Tiny. Uh, you're, with the hope that, you know, 20 years from now, they'll come back to the stream and have babies of their own and continue the cuteness. Uh, for the future. So it, I think it's a really cool way to get people involved and invested in a species that really is one of the charismatic kind of megafauna we have in the Great Lakes. So um, I participated in one of the events a couple of years ago too with my kids and my daughter was just like, she was super interested, but she was like, <laughs> she was they are so, and they look like little dinosaurs. It's so cool. They yeah. look like and then dinosaurs. they've got, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of, um, if you ever, you know, if you happen to see an opportunity, there may be another release this fall. Um, it's so cool. They have so many that you get a chance to hold them and let them out. And yeah, it's really, really awesome. Yeah. And I will, I will take this opportunity to plug an opportunity in Wisconsin. Uh, Cause you know, not just a, a Saginaw Bay 
uh, thing going on, but also through, throughout the Great Lakes, uh, people are raising and uh, stocking these. So Harbor Fest in Milwaukee at the School of Freshwater Science, uh, September 24th, 2023. Uh, you can come on down. Uh, these are uh, gonna be juvenile sturgeon that were raised uh, by the River Edge Nature Center in a streamside rearing facility. Um, all by volunteers, so they they you know get the they have this little trailer that's like a mini hatchery. They take care of them every day, and then in September uh, they bring them all down and, and you get to like uh, kind of adopt a sturgeon basically and uh, release it right into the, the harbor there. So uh, you know fun fun opportunities to uh, to see these. And I I also took my kids uh, one year to a different. Uh, release event and, and they actually had this big slide that they had to install because the it was hard to you couldn't safely walk to the the river's edge because of the the riverbank so they built this like slide with running water and so you would put the sturgeon in on top and they'd just be like kind of wiggling all the way down into the water so it seems like a, a great way oh come on there's got to be video of that where's the video we need oh the video. i yeah i have video of that from the mommy river it's like a salmon too. cannon right? yeah it's basically like salmon cannon but just like like water slide for baby surgeon it's adorable yes it's yeah water slide slip and slide um and the way they yell out we as they slide it's just so cute like, yeah dude it's like that one Jaws. Remember the one Jaws where Jaws roars at the end? It's not the first Jaws. It's well into when Jaws's were maybe less good. <laughs> the little baby sturgeon. It's just yeah, is that our, our next topic is actually uh, reviewing, or maybe our next episode where we, we just shift to reviewing shark movies. That'll be for our members only special. All right. We don't actually have a membership program. What do we know about log perks? Okay, so... First off, first off, before we get into the story about log perch, we talk about common names and stuff like that. What, where the heck did log perch come from? Do either of you know that? I do not know. That's actually a really good question. But there, I mean, there's so many fish that we refer to as perch beyond just like the yellow perch, which is an official common name. I know in some places, uh, sunfish, like, uh, things like bluegill, pumpkin seed, like those are collectively referred to as perch as well. So perch is just like a super common, common name for fish, but I don't know exactly where. Wait, wait, wait. Blue, bluegill and pumpkin seed are referred to as perch? Well, yeah, kind of those panfish in no general kidding. are referred to as perch. Oh, I think it's a Southern thing. Oh, maybe? it's Southern. Yeah. I think it's, yeah. I mean, my dad's from South Central Florida, not the fun part, the hot part. Uh, and he calls them all brim. I don't even brim's know what that the is. other one. Brim. Yep. We got brim. Yeah, but I, I thought it was all fancy. I was like, oh, dad, those aren't brim. Those are perch. Yeah. Okay, so I was going to say, Titus Titus went to his bookshelf. <laughs> so I'm I'm seeing that some some on-the-ground research is happening here. Yeah, I'm doing my, my go-to here is for uh, going to Scott and Crossman, the, the freshwater fishes of Canada, of Canada uh, generally. And they, they like to list the, uh, the other common names. So I'm looking for log perch. I know uh, one of the, uh, so we have, just log perch in the Great Lakes, and that uh, if you go through the, uh, the the dichotomous key and you look at the description for log perch, uh, the the term they use is uh, for their snout, it's a conical protuberance. So I, I introduced my students this summer to that when we caught a bunch of log perch, uh, which were not these Chesapeake log perch, but uh, sort of a cousin to them. But uh, conical protuberance is a great uh, a great term, I think. 
that's almost as good as coddle peduncle so that that's another future show is just all the strange like we'll just show a um anatomical structures yeah exactly yeah yeah i do like that it's a battle of the books because stewart has also consulted his his bookshelf so sorry podcast listeners it's just us it's just yeah us looking at books trying to find the answer all right who's got a bigger book i got freshwater fishes of virginia crossman's gonna be bigger right like scott and crossman has to be no bigger. this is this is bob jenkins <laughs> mm. Okay. Excellent. Well, while we're doing this, tell us about Log Perch. Um... Chesapeake Log Perch. And why are they in the news right now? Yeah. So the Chesapeake Log Perch is actually kind of an interesting story because for most of our knowledge of its existence, it was considered synonymous with the common log perch, the one that's, that Titus mentioned, you know, seeing, we see all over the Great Lakes. Uh, but it wasn't until relatively recently, I think about 2008, when some genetic testing and studies came out that confirmed that the Chesapeake log perch was this unique species. So it's it's separate than the common log perch. Um, but that has also uh, kind of put it at a bit of a risk because where we thought it was more abundant, now we've realized that this unique species is limited to a really small area, uh, kind of the Susquehanna River, uh, Potomac River area of sort of Maryland, Virginia, the DC area. Um, And it's not, its population numbers aren't doing hot right now. So that's kind of why it's in the news of, you know, is this a species that's going to be listed as you know like a federally endangered or threatened species um but i think it's it's actually kind of a unique story because it was only you know relatively recently that we figured out it was a completely separate species and there's a lot to be said for you know when when we're thinking about common fish species like are they actually made up of different sort of unique species within this, this sort of cryptic biodiversity that's not readily apparent, but becomes apparent when we look at sort of the genetic side of things. I think that's a really cool story. All right. I, I'm I'm sorry to report that I, I cannot find any uh, actual reasons for this. Uh, however, let, let's just assume that it's a, it's, I mean, it's obviously a perch and, and maybe they found them under logs um, in association with logs. Uh, however, um, going to Fishes of Wisconsin by George Becker, um, I will read this uh, passage. When fried, log perch are just are just as desirable a food fish as perch and sunfish. However, individual log perch of sufficient size for human consumption are caught, but rarely, and larger fish are often highly encrusted with parasitic nematode black spot, which renders them unpalatable to most people. So. Uh, another thing I love about some of these older fish books is when they throw in a, a preparation uh, food food way to eat them. So, uh, yeah, don't eat the uh, the Chesapeake uh, log perch. I would not recommend that. What percentage of time is the way to eat them? You fry them, but uh... <laughs> absolutely like eating. Uh, what's our our other go to? When we can't get smelt, we can eat uh, uh, stone rollers. So, um, okay, so question from the audience, and I'm going to send this one to Titus. Number one, I'm going to say my kids have already started playing. 
Halloween music, so I'm hearing Ghostbusters every day. But there's a question as we were showing the video there, um, which I think we're going to show the video again now. There's a question. Why is that dude wearing a Ghostbusters backpack? So, Titus. All right. Excellent question. So this is a, a backpack electrofishing unit. So, uh, you know, one of the we've talked about Rotenone already. Well, a another method um, that might sound kind of crazy, but uh, is is not as uh, fatal to fish is electrofishing. So this is creating an electrical field. Uh, and, uh, you know, basically he's got a, a net in one hand, a, 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 I think anode in the other cathode. Uh, on a pole with a ring. So you can see that yellow hand is uh, the, the connected to the backpack. Uh, it's got that ring on it. You can see him lifting up that metal ring. So, uh, and then off the back of the, the pack, there is a, another um, a wire hanging off. So it completes the circuit, this electrical circuit, circuit. The backpack creates an electrical field. It stuns the fish and then you can net them and pick them up. So uh, and then once the current is turned off, they are are not stunned anymore and they can swim away. Uh, so uh, there's lots of different ways to use electrofishing. And so a backpack is a specific type. You know, you're obviously wearing it on your back. This is for weightable small streams. Um, as the streams get larger, you might need more power. So you have, a, you can use a, a, a barge type or a raft type electrofishing unit. So think a, a, just a larger unit floating on a, a little barge. Um, and if you, you know, you get into more open waters, you'll have uh, a whole electrofishing boat where you've got actually a generator that you turn on to create the, the electrical field. You've got a big uh, arrays hanging off the front of the boat and then people up front netting them. So it's just a, a, a good way to catch, to catch fish. Um, you can see in the picture now they're also using a uh, sane as well. So you could use a sane to catch the fish, but it's not going to be as uh, as efficient. Um, they're going to escape from that. This is probably very rocky habitat, I would guess, as well. Uh, so yeah, so electrofishing. So does, another question, does this use high voltage, low amperage, like a stun gun? Um, that we're going to kick over to Katie. Yeah, so I there is one way to think of it as kind of a stun gun. Um, generally, you also can adjust the voltage and amperage uh, to make sure that essentially you don't want to stun them too high uh, because you want them to recover. We want this to be as minimally tra traumatic for fish as possible to ideally, you know, release them uh, out, you know, after you're done sampling. Uh, and it also the voltage and amperage depends a lot on the chemistry of the water you're working with. So in some systems, you may have to adjust it um, higher if depending on the conductivity or conductivity of the water. So things like salts and minerals that are in it. Um, so it definitely does require a little bit of fine tuning um, for environmental factors. Yeah. Yeah, definitely training. You want to be trained ahead of time too. It doesn't work at all in salt water, right? I, yeah, I mean, I don't, know of cases where it's been used in salt water yeah, I, don't I think i think there's a conductivity i don't i think I don't it's a conductivity work. thing yep. yeah yeah it would be too high it would just go so why aren't the people getting electrocuted so if you look at those images most of them have waders on and the waders generally have things like rubber boots um in some cases they might have like rubber gloves on uh to kind of help i 
I think I might speak for a lot of fishery scientists and that sometimes we do have, you know, instances where you reach into the water and you're like, oh, crap. And you get a little bit of a like stinging feeling. Um, I mean, so generally the voltage isn't that high that it will electrocute you as a scientist. I, I think we generally try and avoid that kind of level of voltage, but you can un- sometimes have a little bit of an unpleasant shock if you reach in without rubber gloves on. I was going to say, well, the little fish is going by you and you get excited and you want to grab it. And if there's an, this is what happens to me anyway. I get excited and want to grab it. Exactly. You're just like, oh, the water is electric. And for for me, so I used to drive, again, not a fish person, but I used to drive the boat. And uh, there was this turtle one night who just kept going to the front of the boat. And I told my my. Uh, partner at the time, now husband about it. And he was like, he's an extreme turner. <laughs> like, yep. So, and there was a, there was a comment that said, thank you, uh, that that was good information. So um, let's do our reset. Just a reminder, we did just have a really nice back and forth. Um, this is Ask Dr. Fish, a show where our two Dr. Fishes answer your fish questions, science questions, and life questions. If you have a question for our doctors, you can put it into the chat right now. Use the X Twitter hashtag, hashtag AskDrFish, or you can email us at AskDrFish at gmail.com. Things start to cool off in the fall, so it becomes a little harder to catch fish. But what should people be looking for if they want to go fishing? Like, what are the big fall fisheries coming up? Well, I mean, if we can start Great Lakes uh, fall fishing. Um, and al- although the image we're looking at is from Idaho, really the same uh, kind of uh, fall run fish in the Great Lakes. These are all actually the same same fish stocked into the Great Lakes. So uh, things like steelhead, you might start seeing those. Although I think generally our steelhead are more spring run, so we might not see those. But definitely it is going to be Chinook salmon, uh, coho salmon run season right now. So these, uh, of course, in their native range are anadromous fish. So they spend most of their time out in the big water, like the ocean, for us, the Great Lakes. Uh, and then when it comes to spawning time, they, they head inland into the tributaries, into fresh water. Uh, and that is where uh, anglers in the Great Lakes, especially in the fall, uh, can really access uh, fish in a lot of different ways. And I think it, you know, a lot of the, the summer fishing season, you really need a boat, you've got to go offshore, it, it can be expensive. Uh, but this is the time of year when you can, you know, all you need is a fishing pole. You don't, you can walk to a pier at one of the rivers. Uh, you can walk upstream and at some of the rivers where the, the fish are returning to. And you get, you can pull out this, uh, you know, some, some pretty big uh, salmon right now. Um, Lake Michigan salmon, uh, after, you know, some, some years of, of stocking number reductions, plus maybe a little rebound of, of alewife populations, uh, are pretty big right now. So, you know, people are catching a 30 pound uh, Chinook salmon, which is uh, pretty exciting. So, yeah. And I'll just add that, you know, this is definitely, you know, spawning time for the salmon. And so oftentimes, you know, the salmon are very single track minded. They are coming into the streams because it is time to make the new generation of salmon. Um, so, you know, similar techniques to how, uh, People fish for spawning salmon on like the West Coast, apply here in the Great Lakes. Our tributaries really serve kind of the same function. Um, but sometimes you will catch a fish that is g- getting near the end of the spawning run. We, we sometimes refer to them as zombie fish because uh, they've started to 
you know, their bodies start to break down a little bit near the end of the spawning run. Um, so sometimes they're not always the best for eating, but they do put up, you know, a, a good fight for, for anglers who want to get out there and, and catch some, some, like Titus said, some really big salmon this fall. Send us your zombie salmon. You pick zombie, zombie salmon. We're all professionals here. Send us your zombie salmon pictures. Ask at gmail.com. I was going to say that would be a good Halloween episode. The, exactly. The grosser, the better. Yeah, it's definitely if you want to, if you, if, if you, you know, if you can get them early enough, like if you can, you know, they generally take, start to stage off, off the tributaries uh, before they start their spawning run. And you can still, uh, you know, still get out there and maybe eat them. But yeah, the, you don't want to eat a, a zombie salmon because um, they're, they're pretty gross. And I, I will say there was another question back to the, um, uh, electrofish and comment there's how how many settings can you control and how much voltage is generally used and I want to say that like sometimes people adjust the voltage not just based on the characteristics of the water body but the fish that they're targeting is that right yes so depending on like if you are targeting specific species or like size classes you may want to adjust the settings there as well um, it also the ability to which you have that you can adjust settings depends on the type of electrofishing you're doing. Like Titus said, there's everything from the backpack all the way up to the boat with the generator. Um, so you may have the ability to adjust things differently depending on what your setup looks like. Yeah. And that, that backpack shocker, I mean, the, all of them now are, are pretty much battery powered. They used to have, like you had to carry basically a generator on your back and you know, fire it up with the pull cord. And then you've got this loud generator running on your back and now they're they're battery powered so that yeah you start at the least powered ones with the backpacks and then you move your way up to more power and that's generally the kind of thing you can the way i learned it in a, a electrofishing class is you can standardize the power so you can you know adjust the the amps and the watts uh to get a standardized power um so that you're getting consistent um consistent sampling because you really want to uh you know sample the same way at different places because uh, conditions are going to be different in different places as well. And then I think we're going to put a link in the show notes right now about salmon fishing in Lake Michigan as well. Yeah. So there's a story about 2023 and how the salmon fishing has been, salmon fishing, fishing has been really, there you go. No, now you're starting to get there. Yeah. <laughs> It'll be that It'll be that it's been really awesome in Lake Michigan. And um, something that I find kind of interesting, I don't fully understand it is like how people decide, um, like what to stock and when and how many it's like a it's a interesting math um so all right right. so um for those who haven't joined us before at the end of each show we do a game um do do we want zombie salmon we do not want zombies yes no no, tammy's asked us if she's got a zoom oh Oh, my goodness oh heck yes heck yes oh that is wicked (laughs) perfect so if you're tuned in live we're seeing i'll try to describe it so it's 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 like uh on a beach with a little bit of water and there's the salmon there is no eye in the eye hole there appears to be blood uh, it might be human blood. It's not clear. And and it's got these vicious looking teeth. This flesh is rotting. And it is genuinely terrifying. Um, you won't want to eat a zombie salmon if you see one. Oh, they're all there. Oh, this is bad. Uh, this is some. Uh, all right. Uh, so next episode, I think, is supposed to be in oh, October. Oh, look at that one with the worms. 
Oh, click on the one with the worms. <laughs> right there in the middle bottom. Yeah. Click on the one with the worms. Oh, my. Oh, goodness. yes. Oh, yes. Oh, Actually, cool. we could talk about, I know there's been some studies in Michigan about what's called the necrobiome, the necrobiome. which essentially is like all of the organisms that colonize a dead salmon app and like how that creates its own little ecosystem. But that we are going to save for Halloween. Yeah, definitely. Necrobiome. Yeah. So, but there you go. So listeners or viewers, you got to send us something grosser than that salmon with the worms on it or scarier than the one with the human blood in its eye hole. That's what Yeah. We what grossest, scariest zombie salmon? Yep. AskDrFish at gmail.com. Post a link in the comments right now if you're listening live. Uh, challenge is out. And I'm going to put this in the next Teach Me About the Great Lakes newsletter as well. All right, but Carolyn, being a professional and less of a goofball than I am, wants us to pivot into our game. We like to end every episode of Ask Dr. Fish with a game. We rotate the game sometimes, but today we're going back to the classic 20 questions. And so what it's going to work is this. Titus Seilheimer, Dr. Fish, uh, SG has thought up a fish, or if not, he's about to think up a fish. And so with that, what he's going to do is he's going to send it to us. We're going to ask 20 questions. I'm going to track the number of questions with my fingers. I will lose count because I do. And we will rotate around and we each get a question and then we guess. And if we guess it right, whoever guesses it right wins. If nobody guesses it right, Titus wins. And um, uh, what you get if you win is soapbox time. You get uh, 30 seconds to rant about whatever you want, fish-related or otherwise. If you're listening live and you paste it in the comments at YouTube or Facebook, if you have a question or if you have a guess, um, I don't know what we're going to do if you have a guess uh, and win um, because we're not going to give randos on YouTube or Facebook soapbox time, but uh, we'll figure something out. So yeah, paste your questions in the chat and we're going to go. Titus, do you have a fish? I have a fish. All right, he's got a fish. And the other thing is I, I want the team to remember that we have a whole procedure for when we're ready to guess. Just keep that in mind. Okay. Uh, Katie O'Reilly, you're a Dr. Fish. Why don't you start us off? Question number one. Does this fish live on the bottom, the benthos, or in the water column? It's the one question I have. The one question I have. Uh, yeah, sorry. No, it's fine. Yes, it is. It is a benthic species. Is it a freshwater fish? Yes. Does this fish generally eat other fish? Is it piscivorous? Not generally. Okay. Not generally. So probably smaller. Oh, wait, we don't know for a fact. Does this fish live in the Great Lakes? Yes, it can be found in the Great Lakes. Can be found. Oh, look at this. He's giving us more information. Titus is trying to be kind. It can be found, which means it's also elsewhere. All right, so we're five questions in. I'm no closer to guessing this fish, but maybe you are, listeners. If you have a question for our 20 questions, pop that in the comments. Is it um, generally larger than a Pop-Tart? Yes, it is larger than a Pop-Tart. Does this species generally migrate? Uh, maybe. It's not not a uh, not a species that uh, is you would say. Oh, this is a migratory species. Okay, not like obvious migrate grading to right. spawn. Okay, it's hard when I don't really know the answers to any okay. questions. Yeah, I realize we need like a sound bed on this. This is where we're going wrong. You know, like because all the like uh, the Millionaire Show they have like that dramatic music. I'm looking through. I don't think I have it. Yeah, like it's a. All right, something to work on for next time. We got a question in the chat that might help. All right, question number eight. Does it taste like chicken? 
<laughs> Thank you for that, Chris Hogan. Uh, yes. Yes. No. How about no? Let's say well, no. Have you know. eaten it before? I have not, but people do eat it. Okay. All right. Thank you for that. So people do eat it, but not enough that we know it tastes like chicken. All right. Um, is this fish? I'm going to go family. I'm going to go family. Is this fish a catastomid? Which means a sucker. Yes, it is. It is. It is. You've narrowed <laughs> it down. You well. Uh, that was going to be my question too. So I deferred to Katie. No, it wasn't. That's not true. <laughs> it You're really was. I was like, it's a sucker. There was a question about. So, Katie, go ahead. Uh, is this species found in all five of the Great Lakes or only in part of the basin? Um, not all five. It is. And, and the Great Lakes aren't really its primary habitat. Okay. Okay. So, some kind of a red horse. Uh, is this is this some kind of a red horse? That's my question number ten. No, it's not a red horse. Not a red horse. Not a red horse. We're halfway home. Yeah, you're we're, you're in the home stretch now. We're in the home stretch. We are halfway home. Okay, so let's just recap. So it doesn't have barbels. It's a catastomid. Lives on the benthos. Great Lakes aren't. It's well, doesn't live maybe in the Great Lakes proper, but. Great Lakes region is part of its range. People do eat it. And it's bigger than a Pop-Tart. It's bigger than a Pop-Tart. And it's not a red horse. Not a red horse. All right. Guess 11 is yours, Carolyn. Um, Carolyn is not a fish person. Um, so, uh... Has Carolyn heard of it? That's question 11. There you go. Has Carolyn... Is it likely that Carolyn's heard of it? It's possible. <laughs> Everything is possible. I feel like it, it has been in the news. Uh, maybe not this specific species, but one of its uh, in the science news, we'll say. For uh, a very interesting, surprising finding about this group of species. Now I'm now I'm interested. Does it have a long nose? It does not have a long nose. Let's see. So now I'm now I'm Googling sucker fish science news. Does it use physics to surf on their on its whale host? <laughs> uh, uh, how did you you got it right? That's exactly. <laughs> oh, that's a remora. That's no, exactly yeah. remora. exactly what I was going. There's for. a lot of articles on how remoras. I guess that must have been a new thing. All right. Um, fantastic. Here's an article at Great Lakes Now. You know what? We just need to roll. Katie, do you have any guesses? This is getting. Yeah, let me just try audience. one guess. Let me apologize to our audience. They're listening to us like, Titus has got us totally stumped. There's 100 million types stumper. of sucker out there. Uh, it's not a red horse, which is the only type of sucker I know anything about. And so we're relying on the grace and knowledge of Katie O'Reilly, but she isn't primed uh, on this one. So no. uh, I apologize. But I'm going to take a guess anyway. Yeah, take a guess. You're going to take a guess. Hold on. Hold on. Yep. There's a guess procedure, Katie. I wasn't prepared for this. Okay. Now, we're going to take the guess. And then we're going to do the drum roll and Titus is going to say yes or no. And then we're going to have the, either the womp womp or the woo. Okay. So here we go. Let's hear the guess. Okay. Is it the Northern hog sucker? Wah, wah, wah. No, you're wrong. No. 
It is not. Oh, it is the Black Buffalo. Ah. All right. Well, Titus wins again. Uh, as is shocking. So, <laughs> before Titus goes, we should act his... more happy. Good job, Titus. Way to go. Nice oh. job. <laughs> Wait, that was a stumper. Oh my goodness, Katie. Just we have that recording. You too. You both make the same noises every time. That is adorable. That is just fantastic. We've got Titus's womp and Katie's woo. Before we go to Titus's thirty seconds of soapbox time. There's a little bit of show-oriented news this week that I just want to point out for a second. We have two people leaving our production team uh, on for greener pastures, hopefully not greener lakes. Um, and that is, uh, first of all, our live broadcast guru, Tammy Winsel. She's the parent of everything that we do right, I think. Um, she is uh, taking another job, a huge promotion, I assume. Uh, and so uh, she has run every one of these live broadcasts. She does done all the switching so that like when you see just Katie's face pop up or just my face pop up, God forbid, um, uh, that's all been her. And if she doesn't do that, I have to do it, which means I, I'm even uh, worse at hosting the show than I would be otherwise. So thank you so much to Tammy. And uh, we're welcoming Dean Underwood is our new producer. Live broadcast guru is what we call it because producer sounds like it should be paid. Um, and then uh, if you listen to the podcast version, that's always edited by Quinn Rose. And we've been warning everybody for months that Quinn is leaving to go to graduate school in library and information science. And Quinn is leaving us. This is going to be actually the last episode in the Gobi Dog Media Empire that Quinn edits. And so we thank Quinn for everything that they've done for us. Um, it's hard with an editor. Like, uh, it's weird. I don't, need, I, don't, I don't need to go into this much. But I, I've been talking with the team. It's a weirdly intimate relationship in a strange way. Because I've never actually spoken with Quinn. Uh, literally never exchanged a verbal word. But I've, I've spoken at Quinn, you know, just hours and hours and hours. And so it's this weird, and it's asymmetric. Uh, it's, uh, anyway, um, and so it's kind of this unique, weird, intimate relationship. And, and so I'm, I'm, I'm strangely emotional about it. But it'll all be fine. Uh, and we appreciate everything that both Tammy and Quinn have done. But that is not the reason that we are here today. The reason we're here today is for Titus to go on a 30-second rant. So take it away, Titus. All right. So why did I pick Buffalo? Uh, of course I picked Buffalo because I was just at the American Fishery Society meeting in Grand Rapids, uh, participating in the non-game symposium and learned a lot about non-game fish like Buffalo. Uh, buffalo are these suckers. They can live a long time. Uh, recently, uh, Alec Lackman and others. Uh, Alex up at uh, U University of Minnesota Duluth, and he is the guru of aging these non-game fish uh, and found a big mouth buffalo related to the black buffalo that was 200, 112 years old. Uh, and black buffalo can live 50 plus years. Uh, so really kind of uh, unappreciated fish that live a long time, have seen a lot, um, and Apparently you can also eat them. So it's all great things in my book. Ask Dr. Fish is brought to you by the fine people at Illinois, Indiana Sea Grant, Wisconsin Sea Grant, and Gobi Dog Media. The show is produced and hosted by Stuart Carlton, Carolyn Foley, Dr. Fish Katie O'Reilly, and Dr. Fish Titus Eilheimer. The live broadcast gurus are Tammy Winsel and Dean Underwood. And the live broadcast itself is produced by our pals at Great Lakes Now. Science about the lakes you love. Go check out Great Lakes Now. News about the lakes you love. Science, news, everything about the lakes you love. Great Lakes Now has got them. 
podcast version of the show is edited for one last time by the awesome Quinn Rose. Thank you, Quinn. Good luck. You, Quinn. Library Sciencing. I know you'll be awesome at that. And the podcast artwork is by Ethan Kosak, and you can view his portfolio at ethankosak.com. That's K-O-C-A-K. If you have questions for Doctors Fish, which really makes my job easier if you give us the questions, um, please send an email to askdoctorfish at gmail.com. Use the Twitter <laughs> hashtag AskDrFish or call our hotline at 765-496-4474. Thanks for listening and we'll see you live on to YouTube and Facebook at 11 a.m. Eastern on usually the second Monday of every even month. So October, I think, is the next one we're aiming for. October, Halloween special. In between now and with zombies. That's actually, I'm pretty excited. Okay. AskDrFishGmail.com. Give us your zombie salmon. Or mail a zombie salmon. Titus, University of Wisconsin. No, 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 no. Don't send that. Don't do that to the Postal Service. In between now and then, if you have fish questions, science questions, or life questions, just ask Dr. Fish. <laughs>